Hi, my name's Andy Cope and welcome to the most uplifting podcast in the world. As a positive psychology researcher, I'm excited, delighted and honoured to be sitting in the podcast hot seat. The aim is to bring you guests who have something interesting or insightful or inspirational. They might have a story to tell, something clever, something simple, anything goes. We hope to inspire, educate, entertain and on a good day, maybe even make you chuckle. And why should you listen? Well, we figure life is relentless. It's full on. And most people are a million miles away from feeling as great as they could. So think of this podcast as a reminder or maybe a leg up to being a better version of you. Sometimes against the odds. So relax, open your ears, open your mind and allow me to bring you this week's amazing episode of the best podcast in the world. On with the show. Okay, I am doubly, triply excited today. Um, I thought I'd start this podcast with not name dropping, but place dropping. So uh, we're really lucky that Artobi and Brill that we're getting to a few global uh, sort of events now. So I was in Zaragoza last week, that's in Spain, delivering one of our Artobi and Brilliance. Um, and I walked in there, there's going to be 150 delegates, so you get there early, you get plugged in. And I turned up into this auditorium, and as I was plugging in, there's this huge mugshot of this guy on the screen behind me. Uh, and I thought, I know that face, I know that video, and there it was. His, my warm-up man on, on the screen from last year was my one of my mates, uh, Richard Gerver, from just down the road from where I live. And I couldn't believe it that the Gerv was my warm-up man. And guess who I'm speaking to today? International keynote speaker, prolific best-selling author, former head teacher... Um, one of the biggest voices and the biggest personalities that I know. I'm delighted and excited to be talking to the one and only Richard Gerver. How are you doing, boy? Hola, Andy. Como oh. esta? Oh, eh? I don't know even how to answer that, mate. That was a, a, bit, a bit, bit of a problem with us English, is that we get lazy on the language. Um, yeah. I've just found if you speak slower and louder, everybody understands That's you. Uh, I, I believe we're talented multilinguists. <laughs> okay, fella. <laughs> right, so what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about... Um, can we start with your background, mate? Because you've got a kind of interesting backstory. So where, we'll talk about what you, what you do currently in a minute, but where did it start? Well, <laughs> the really amazing thing from my point of view, Andy, is when I think about my, my, uh, my career and life really as an adult. When I left school at 18, um, I swore never to go back anywhere near education again. Um, I'd had a really uh, complex time as a, as a kid in, in school. Um, I wasn't particularly sporty, although I loved sport. I wasn't particularly academic, um, although I wasn't lazy. Um, I was very artsy. I loved drama, painting, writing, but they just weren't the kind of things that, that uh, the educators that I had at that time thought were of, of any great value. So when I left school at 18, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't really know where I was going, but I kind of knew I didn't want to have anything to do with education, which is really extraordinary given that in 1992, I became a a teacher, Um, mainly if I'm honest, and and I think honesty is really important with with your audience. Um, I didn't become a teacher because I had a kind of flash of inspiration and and kind of... um, unbelievable desire to to be a teacher um i'd fallen for a girl at college and uh, <laughs> she, she was training to be a teacher and this is advice for anyone that's going through the courting journey never promise on something you've no intention of delivering on because i told her because she was training to be a teacher that i thought teaching was an amazing idea and and maybe it was something i can could uh, consider anyway as our relationship became more serious 
and we committed to each other. She helped me to that, and uh, I found myself becoming a teacher. Okay, um, but but it didn't stop there, mate. Because so you you're telling me you accidentally became a teacher, and then you accidentally became a head teacher. So how did that happen? Yeah, it did. I I was. Uh, you know, I love being, I have to be honest, teaching was one of those things, you know, although it happened to me by accident when I was there, I found myself truly in a place I felt passionately I belonged. I was happy, really happy, um, probably for the first time in my kind of adolescent stroke adult life, really. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I was happy as a teacher. That's what I thought I wanted to be. And I stumbled into a school um, in Long Eaton in 2001 at the time. I'd been seconded by a local authority to develop a, a project to motivate, uh, demotivated boys to write and read. And one of the schools that the authority had wanted me to try and entice into this project with this, was this failing primary school in, in Long Eaton on the Nottingham Derby border. Um, and I walked in there with no intention of doing anything other than trying to get the teachers and kids in this school involved in the project and, and fell in love. It's like the pattern of my life, isn't it? I fall in love with things and people and it changes the direction of my life. I fell in love with this place, um, applied for the headship, even though I wasn't really interested in headship, but there was something magical about this school. Um, got the job, not because I was uber talented, but because I was the only candidate. <laughs> I love the honesty, <laughs> Genuinely. I, yeah, well, mate, The only honestly, one stupid enough been... to reply. Yeah, the only yeah one well, I could have been there to fix the photocopy and they would have kept me. Um, but the truth was, it was a school that there were rumours that the government were considering closing down and the only person that hadn't heard the rumours were me. Um, so anyway, I ended up in, in headship at, at this incredible school, Grange in Long Eaton. Um, worked with an amazing community, amazing kids, brilliant parents, phenomenal staff who, who had just... All the energy, life and enthusiasm had been sucked out of them for all kinds of reasons. And and basically what we did was we set about in the early days. Um, so one of the quotes I was famous for at the time was saying to my staff, how do we turn our school into somewhere as exciting as Disneyland? And and really, once the laughter like yours had subsided. <laughs> um, manic, crazy laughter. Yeah. yeah seven, seven years later, you know, Mickey, Goofy and Pluto were all running around and the school had become a recognized global success. And uh and that was down to an extraordinary group of people trusting my uh, my ignorance and stupidity and turning it into something really quite remarkable. Hey, mate. All right. Well, I mean, I'm going to stop you there on the Grange because I think if people just Google Grange Primary School Long Eaton and Richard Gerber, they will find a fantastic... You are doing yourself down so much there. Essentially, what you did was you kind of empowered the teachers and the kids to be their best selves from what I can gather and as a result of them feeling fantastic about coming to school everything turned around and you became this kind of school that everybody looked up to instead of looking down upon and that my friend is a huge feather in in in, in your cap but Thank you. I want to park that one there because that was the, I knew that was a really interesting backstory but that's not what you do now right no. so you are now this kind of international keynote speaker in education and business but I heard you talking on a on a a rival podcast, good lord, <laughs> you were rather fantastic. And I remember you telling a story about um, your own kids and uh, at the uh, your son's parents' evening. Can can you do, can you remember what you said and just recount <laughs> oh, that story can, for yeah. me? It's a, it's a story I'll never forget, Andy. To be honest with you, um, we we my wife and I 
um, would obviously go to all the parents' evenings we could for both of our, our children. And my wife over time, our son is our, our younger kid. He's, he's 16 at the moment, like, you know, 16 at the moment, but soon he'll be 17. Um, but he's 16 at the minute, but he's our younger kid. So we, you know, like most parents who have, have had a couple of kids and have been through parents' evenings over time, you, you create a kind of highly honed routine. Um, and up until this point, my wife, who's also a remarkable educator, a head teacher, had had developed a very clear routine, which was, i.e., do not let Richard speak at parents' evenings. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and she developed this technique, which will be familiar, I'm sure, to a number of people that have been in long-term relationships and particularly people that have kids. The only time uh, she would hold my hand was in parents' evenings. She would usually grab my hand under the desk as the teacher was using the words, is there anything you'd like to ask me? But it wasn't, a, um, it wasn't affectionate. It was actually a warning sign that basically said, if you open your mouth, Richard, take an intake and prepare to speak, I will break your knuckles. Um, on this particular evening, we went to a parents' evening when my son was still at primary school. We'd done the sitting outside in the doctor's waiting room. You know, we'd, we'd looked at his exercise books instead of uh, Country Life magazine. Um, and, and we were sat with other parents who were sat there cooing over their children's exercise books. And, and um, we'd, we'd spent 20 minutes or so looking at his maths exercise book, which on the surface of things, and, and maybe this does make me a bad parent, should have been exceptional. You know, there were ticks all over the place, pain. Pages and pages and pages of sums and equations and ticks he, he everywhere. After his mother, intelligence-wise, then there's no, there's no doubt about that, mate. And and she makes that clear to me every day. And and um, I'm, we're sat there looking at this book, and and people opposite us are cooing, obviously the same thing on their child's exercise. But the time comes for us to go in to meet the teacher. And and don't get me wrong, the teacher um, was was lovely, passionate, loved the kids. Um, really great, uh, enthusiastic young teacher. And, and I am, um, as you'll find out in a second, a really deeply flawed and unpleasant human being. We went in <laughs> and we sat down and she talked about our son in glowing terms, you know, and all I could think <laughs> about was, you've no idea what he's really like. You've not seen his bedroom for a start. You know, we're sat there. And she then gets to that bit where she says, have you have you had a chance to look at Andrew's exercise books? And we suggest we have. And she said, well, is there anything you'd like to say? Now, at this point, usually my wife would hold my hand. Uh, unfortunately for her, after years of experience, I put my hand on the desk so that she couldn't reach for it. And she looked at me in that way that said, oh, my God, don't do it, Richard. Please don't do it. And, and looking back on it, I could have... I could have said what I was about to say in, in maybe more sensitive terms. So I looked to this teacher and she just said to me, is there anything you'd like to say or ask? And I said, just, just one thing. And she said, yes, yes, sure, Mr. Gover. What is it? I said, why? And this is the point at which people listening to this podcast are likely to turn off Andy. She said, why? Oh, sorry, I said to her, why are you wasting my son's time? And uh, I mean, it, it was the wrong way, but in her heart, then you could see her face. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, all the ticks in the book. She said, yes, he works really hard. I said, I've no doubt he does, and I've no doubt you do. But all he's doing is proving to you hour after hour that he knows this stuff. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, from my point of view, you've got to remember that you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. I said, look, to be honest with you, 
The ticks don't impress me. What would really impress me is where you're showing me my son's making mistakes and learning from them. Um, so, you know, I could have been, I was a little bit crass, if I'm honest, and, and my wife has never actually given me the dates of parents' evenings since, funnily enough. But, <laughs> but you know, the point for me is very real and, and I think is really, really important. Uh, well, it's, a, it's a, a jaw-dropping story for me because I would be the parent that wouldn't, understand what you just I would be the parent looking at the ticks and going in thinking oh that's fantastic he's doing such a good job thank you teacher for doing such a great job and I think it's the way that you're making me rethink how I'm quite I'm reasonably forward thinking mate I'm reasonably I get most of this but that story for me still makes me think do you know what you bang on right is 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 it's not just the school system sometimes it's the workplace as well is is we're just going through the motions, aren't we, and ticking boxes and um, stretching people. You've got to make mistakes. If you, if you, it works well, about growth mindsets. That story, essentially, I think. Um, can, can can I bring you back to another story? And what's the difference between me and you, mate? Is is when we go out for a beer? Is you always come into the pub, give me a big hug, and you ask me things like, "Copy, how are we going to change the education system? How are we going to make it more like Disneyland?" And I'm just thinking, "What beer am I going to have?" So I have, <laughs> you have these huge global thoughts, and I, I have lots and lots of tiny little thoughts, and I think I'm normal, and you're just a little bit weird, which is in a good way, in a good way. Can I bring you back to another story that I heard you tell? Couple of, probably a few years ago now, you might have stopped telling it, but I know you'll remember it. And it is the sausage sandwich story because it's kind of, it kind uh, of leads on, mate. In my head, this is yeah. the corollary. So tell me about the sausage sandwich story. Well, let, let me just give you a bit of context for that and link the two, really. You know, one of the things that I'm passionate about, and this is one of those moments I was thinking about while you were getting the ales in the last time we were together, which is, you know, something something that I have been driven by since the earliest days of my time as a teacher, because I remember hearing it from a lecturer when I was at college saying, and he said something like, do you know that we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five years old. Now, when we make that statement, we're not talking about stuff, but we're talking about the sheer complexity of what we master in the first five years of life. Walk, most of us, you know, walking, talking, learning to understand body language, facial expression, vocal intent, all that kind of complexity, right? And then we go through this, this education system, and then we end up, some of us, if we're lucky enough, working at East Midlands Airport in what was many years ago, the first time I went through it, the only cafeteria in the place. Right? <laughs> I mean, these days, obviously, it's it's uber glam and uber international and trendy. And it great, used to be a porter cabin, didn't it? It with did, a, with a, yeah. yeah. There, there were a couple of people serving uh, tea out of one of those urns and, and various... But anyway, I went in one morning and in the early days when I started doing this travelling lark, I loved it mainly because it meant my wife couldn't see what I was eating. Um, and, and if I was doing an early starter like I was this day, I would go in and order all the stuff. I'm, I'm fundamentally, I've never grown up. Um, I, I would order all the stuff that there's no way I would have been allowed to order had I been with my family. So I'd been like fantasizing on the way to the airport about about a sausage sandwich, right? Or a sausage cob, as we call it. I mean, literally like food porn. I'd got really excited. Turned up at the airport, gone through the rigmarole of security and all the rest of it, queued up at the only cafeteria because obviously there were loads of people flying off at this time in the morning and I was queuing up and I got nearer the nearer the front of the queue. Anyway, there was this lad, Billy, who um, 
who who eventually I got to to be served by, got to the front of the queue, and Billy's there. And the reason I knew he was called Billy was he had one of these proper, not these cardboard laminated uh, name badges, mate, a proper full-on plastic engraved name badge. And, and, oh, mate, he had five of them, five gold stars. So I knew not only was I about to have the greatest sausage sandwich experience of my life, but it was going to be served to me by a ninja, right? A a ninja of oh, management, of, mate, with five oh, stars. This boy was special. And what made him even more remarkable was I reckon he was only just out of school, right? Yeah. So this kid was a proper high flyer. So I'm there and, and Billy looks up from the, the cash till and immediately hits me with five-star customer service. He said, yes. I said, can <laughs> Can I have, please, a sausage sandwich? <laughs> and he, he looked at me with five-star customer service and gave that shrug that, you know, people with five-star And he went, no. <laughs> now, people who are listening to this... Hey, you've been fantasizing about this sausage sandwich, mate, yeah. all the way through, through uh, yeah, security. Oh, you've no idea. It would have been, you know, like a 16-year-old boy having one of those beautiful Athena posters on their wall of some gorgeous woman finally meeting her and her just saying, no, bog off. Yeah. No, go away, you're right. But I know, right. so, I know that you could see the sausages and you could see the bread. Oh, but this was the thing. Over his left shoulder... Over his left shoulder was a pile. No, not a pile. That's doing an injustice. A pyramid of glistening sauce. You know, and for some people, this may sound like hell. But the the, the fresh, like, clear fat was just tripping, glistening down this pyramid. right? And on the other side was a pile of that fresh-baked bread rolls. You know the ones with the flour on the top? So oh, if you yes. bang them. Perfect the for a sausage right? sandwich, oh, my friend. Yeah, Perfect. Exactly, exactly, right? So I'm looking at the sausages, and I'm looking at the bread. And he's obviously done a basic course in NLP because he's reading my body language, right? And he goes, oh, oh, yes, he says, yes. Yes, he says, I can see that you can see them. I said, yes, I can. He said, but I'm afraid we can't do you a sausage sandwich because we don't have a sausage sandwich on the till. You can only have a sausage and a bread roll as part of a full English breakfast. I said, I don't want a full English breakfast. I just want a sausage. Anyway, I made a bit of a fuss to such an extent. He went and spoke to his supervisor, came back two minutes later. And he said, well, I really am sorry. I can't sell you a sausage sandwich. But what I can do is sell you a plate of sausages and separately I can sell you a bread roll. (laughs) So I find myself walking over to the tomato and brown sauce uh, station with my Ikea flat pack sausage sandwich. Self-assembly. Yeah, thinking to myself, oh, my God, Billy, what have we done to you? <laughs> and it is absolutely that idea of the tick box mentality. Yes. So yeah, I mean, it. it I, I love that story partly because it's funny, partly because we've all sort of experienced something similar, and partly because it's not really having a go at Billy. It's having no. a go more at the system that we've put Billy through. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Bill was he was doing everything he could to do the best job possible, but he'd been taught to do that job within rigid rules and systems and basically had never been taught through his life that he would be rewarded for thinking to do something for himself, that actually he'd always been rewarded for solving the problems that other people had set him and to living within the lines that other people had created. Okay, well, here we come to your one of your main themes of your talks then is, is bang, we're bang on it is that school isn't preparing 
uh, uh, children for the modern world. So, t- so tell me about the modern world. Tell me about what what skills are needed. Tell me how do you make yourself change proof in a bonkers world that's full of change. Well, you know, this I think this is absolutely the, the crucial question, Andy, because one of the, the things that, that really has disturbed me for many years, and, and I need people to understand if you like the reasoning behind it, is that, that I have no problem with the traditional education system in terms of what it was designed for when it was designed. You know, it was designed to feed an industrial revolution. It was designed to feed a world that was pretty much about certainty and and training us to find the right route to take to certainty. So in other words, when you think about it, most of us are educated to seek out certainty in our lives. You know, we are told that if we do X and Y and Z, that will eventually lead us to a place where we can secure great jobs for the rest of our lives, where we can have salaries and pensions and all that kind of stuff, right? So we're trained to seek out certainty. Um, and, and pretty much the problem I have now is we still live in that education setting. So we are still pretty much trained to seek out certainty and do what we're told. Now, when you think about the, the traditional education system, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, certainly, the most important skill set a school leaver could demonstrate to a future employer. And this isn't me saying it. This is hard evidence from from the OECD and the major organizations that put together all the complex data, right? The most important skill set was the ability to demonstrate routine cognition. In other words, the ability to absorb complex technical information and repeat it over and over and over again with high levels of of efficiency. In other words, working in a, a, a organization which is predicated about doing the same thing as efficiently as possible in order to maximize performance, right? Yeah. Now, what's really interesting is the OECD did a research project in 2013 revisiting this same set of criteria. What were employers looking for from employees coming out of education, be it school, being apprenticeship, be it university? And what's fascinating is in 2013, the desire for people to be able to demonstrate routine cognition was such a minor percentage. And and by the way, they interviewed over 3000 of the world's largest companies was such a minor skill set. It didn't even rank on the graph by far the most important skill set that major employers globally now are looking for are interpersonal skills. Um, and, And again, that's not me saying it as some kooky liberal. That is hardcore economics from the international um, organization with responsibility for economic development. Right. So, well, well, yes. And well, that takes me straight away down the the modern world of uh, I, uh, interpersonal skills like face-to-face talking and getting on with people and creating rapport and building trust and and all that kind of stuff i i have this thing in in organizations where we're over communicating but under conversing so it's not lack of communication people are sinking under the weight of emails and conference calls but yep. they're not they haven't got the ability or the time or uh, to, to go sit face-to-face with somebody and, and have a chat 
That's true. And also we're living as well as that. And, and that's central to this. We're also still living in very hierarchical organizations where most people feel their job is to do what they're told to do. So they are sinking under not just the emails, but the latest idea that's coming from top down, the latest strategy that someone on middle management has presented to them. Um, and, and increasingly, people are feeling disenfranchised. People are feeling that they have less and less control. You know, one of the reasons why we're seeing mental health problems today reach epidemic proportions is because the increasing number of people in their personal and, that, and their professional lives who are drowning under uh, a real belief that they are losing control over everything, their work yes. lives and their personal lives. Well, I read some research just the other week, I think it was a Gallup survey, where globally only 18% of the working population are fully engaged at work in terms of coming to work with a spring in their step and a, and a creativity and a, and a bounce so that's the vast majority of people who come in just to get survive till the end of the week um i mean we call it destination addiction where, where your sole purpose on monday is to is to get to the end of the week or survive to the next holiday and teachers fall into that but so everybody that i uh, i come across in the workplace or well, nearly everybody also falls for that as well so too many people sleepwalking through life trying to get it over with which just makes no sense at all in terms of what we talk about and also I also find I don't know if you concur with this mate that I think and it's not just education it's just generally adults is there still too many people who are thinking that change is a six month thing <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll like so school inspection will be in six months and then when that's over it'll go back to normal or there's a big restructure at work as soon as that's sorted we'll go back to normal and I think that the sooner people can get that out of their head and realise that change is normal, this is part and parcel of what we do, um, then I think it makes it... I'm not saying change is necessarily a good thing, and certainly the pace of change seems to be a, a crippler for most people, but it isn't going to go away. And I think it's aligning ourselves and our school kids and the, given the education system, reworking it so it equips people for the bonkersness that is the modern world. Well, I, I, it goes back to, for me, you're right, and it goes back to me for the, this thing about ownership and, and a sense of, of control. Um, you know, when, mo when you talk to most people about change, what they hear is, so they don't hear change at all. What they hear is, so you want me to implement another silver bullet, another strategy on top of everything everything else I'm already doing. So what they don't hear is change. What they're hearing is, you just want me, I am going to end up working harder. I'm going to be doing more and more on top of what I already do, right? It's all going to be short term. It all has to be done by yesterday. And now, the really interesting thing about change is none of us are change averse, mate. I mean, you know, when a new restaurant opens up and you, or you decide, oh, we've never eaten there. Let's, let's have a meal in that place tonight. Or if you're lucky enough to be able to afford a holiday, let's Let's shift it around. Let's try somewhere we've never been before. There's always, yes, a free son of fear and uncertainty. But because it's something you've chosen to do, it excites you right yes. now. The problem with most organizational change is it's delivered by somebody else. You're told to implement it on top of everything else you're already implementing. And it's expected to be done yesterday. Now, number of things about change for me. One is if you can ensure that you feel a sense of ownership or if you're a manager or, or a leader in an organization, that you create a culture where people can genuinely own the change. 
you will find people embracing it with a greater degree of enthusiasm. That's the first thing. Ownership of change is really important. Secondly, change is much more exciting when it's proactive rather than reactive. Most of the change we see in education, for example, is reactive. It's responding to the latest data, the latest set of results, the latest policy document, the latest edict from, from an uh, Ofsted or, or an inspectorate. You know, change if it's part of a process of continuous action re research. You have an idea, you're allowed to cook with it, play with it, bring people into your idea, see if you can turn it into something exciting. You know, that stuff is, is great. People love it. And the really important thing for me about change is in order for it to be sustainable, it should never be a big fanfare moment. You know, if you go back to the, the Japanese idea and philosophy around change that really revolutionized the industrial revolution, which was the idea of Kaizen, you know, small incremental yes. changes. One of the things I often say to people is change should never be a big moment or a conference or an event. It should feel as imperceptible as the daily growth of your children. You know what I mean by that? Well, you never see your own children grow. It's only when you look at pictures <laughs> of them six months ago and you go, holy moly, how did they get here, right? Now, that to me is all part of how we have to recalibrate change. But at the heart of it is ownership. Telling people to do stuff is really not sustainable. And it is never going to create oh, a sustainable you culture. See, I promise. I, I said there'd be some big thoughts today. I mean, there's. A, can I chuck my big thought in there just as my two yeah. tennis worth? I don't think it's time. We will have to do podcast volume two to get this one. But when oh, let's just go back to education again, just for a second. I did a head teachers conference last Friday. And these poor people, they're not averse to change and they want to own the change, but they are a victim of a system they don't actually believe in. So I, I don't want to get too heavy with this, but the modern education system seems to be... Imagine having to implement change from above that you don't actually believe in and you've had no say in. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, which is which is back to ed why education is so challenging at the moment. If, if I can, can I tell you a story? Because it's one of the ways I try and help people reconfigure that thought because it's right. And, and you know, we'd be lying if, if any of us could claim to be the, the wizard with the magic wand that could make that reality go away. It is there. And, yes. and no to be honest with you, it's a reality of who's in power, who's in government, pretty much whichever country in the world you're in, um, you know, that that is a reality. Um, one of the stories I've been telling recently is based on a, an, on a guy who um, has become a, a real friend and inspiration to me. And his name is Sebastian Foucault. Now, a lot of the people listening to this podcast might not know who Sebastian is. But if I tell them he's the founder of parkour, free running, people start to, to twitch. And then when I tell you that if, if you saw the first ever Daniel Craig James Bond film, Casino Royale, and if you remember the opening sequence in that movie where Bond is chasing a bad guy over buildings and cranes and it's the yes. most extraordinary thing, that is Seb. The bad guy is Seb okay. in the movie, right? Now, what fascinates me about Seb, and, and I won't go into detail, I won't tell the whole story now, but I, the quick, the quick important soundbite. So, we were sat having a, a coffee one afternoon, having been walking together around a city called Yekaterinburg in Russia, which is infamous, actually, because it's the city where the Tsar's arena and their children were slaughtered at the end of the Russian Revolution. And we were walking around the city and it's an amazing architectural city for all kinds of reasons. And we sat there in the hotel afterwards having a coffee. And I said to him, isn't this an amazing place, Seb? And he looked at me in the way he's French 
in in only the way a Frenchman can look at an Englishman. And, and you won't see the Gallic shrug on the podcast now, but that kind of um, kind of, you know, what he was basically saying in, in one look was you idiot. Um, and I said, what what do you mean? What He said, well, I he said, Richard, I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked at the buildings and I looked at him and, and in a way that required an explanation. And he, he said, well, look, when I was a child growing up in a slum north of Paris, he said, I grew up in a place that was just tower blocks, concrete. He said, and as a result, as a young child, you know, everything seems bigger. He said, I don't ever remember as a child seeing daylight. He said, the concrete just felt like a prison. And he said, and you know, I grew up in a community where, to be honest, life was about survival. Nobody in that community ever visualized they'd leave. But to them, just waking up every day was a triumph because of some of the adversity in the situation mm. and, and the lack of hope. He said, but I think it was around that time that I stopped being pro preoccupied with buildings. He said, and, and as I've grown up, he said, that's where parkour came from. He said, what I mean by that is, and he asked me a question. He said, have you ever walked through an urban landscape and rather than looked at the buildings, looked at the spaces between the buildings? And I said, no. He said, because the spaces between buildings, Richard, are beautiful. He said they're beautiful for a number of reasons. He said, firstly, they're beautiful just purely aesthetically. The shapes they make are staggering. And the tragedy is everyone's so preoccupied with the buildings, they never see the art in the spaces. Well, I, I've never seen... A, a, no, we, I go yeah. to great cities to look at the buildings, not the spaces exactly. between them, mate. Yeah, exactly. And then he said to me, and he said, and the main reason is because that's where the light is. And where the light is constitutes the opportunity to keep your journey going. He said, the problem, he said, I come across with most people like you and I, Andy, is we are obsessed with the buildings, right? And that means we lose sight of the light. We lose sight of the opportunity. Now, what I would say to people in what is incredibly dark and difficult times, particularly in education, and it's, I'm not trying to soft soap it, but we have to audit ourselves and find a way to stop obsessing with the buildings because the light is there. The gaps are there. And actually, although we can't live a joyous life 100% of the time in school leadership right now, if we make sure that through our leadership, we spend time looking for the light and then helping our staff and our colleagues towards those spaces between the buildings, we can find ourselves in a place where we build momentum and we do go home at night thinking that we have achieved something that was important to us <sighs> i'm just going to pause for i'm, I'm going to let you pause for breath mate while i uh, i'm just going to close my jaw because it's fallen open i mean that is that is a message about school leadership and teachers but it's also a message for every single person who works in business every parent every grandparent auntie uncle on the planet isn't it really it's a message for us all there. So that's fantastic. Can I can I just build on that? I did a, you know, I talk about my two percenters, my my the people I've been researching in my PhD. These they are the light. They are the people who light up the room when they walk in. They're the, the statistically the happiest, most positive people that we can all think of right now. And I did a session in. It was a, a school session with some teachers, about sixty five teachers in the room. And uh, no, sorry, sorry, no, it was with the kids. It was the year sixes, 10 year old kids, um, two classes of them, so 65 kids. And I said to the kids, okay, I explained what a two percenter was, and I said, who knows a two percenter? And sadly, not very many hands went up, but this little boy is the first one to put his hand up. So I said to him, yes, yes, young, young fellow, I said, who's the most positive person in your life? And he pointed over at his teacher and he said, 
she is miss she is the most amazing person in my life and guess what that teacher spontaneously burst into tears and sometimes i think we almost don't know that we're the light is that is that a fair comment i mean we all have good days but we have too many bad days as well and um i think we're trying to minimize the bad days isn't it we we're not everybody's going to be happy all the time but but when you think about it, mate, that's exactly the point. You know, it's what it's what great teachers need to hold on to. It's what people in general need to hold on to is we all have it in us to seek out the spaces between the buildings. And, and a lot of us do it inadvertently. And great teachers do it every single day. Because if you think about the reflex of a great teacher, it is never to actually allow a child to fail. So they are the absolutely that they are the founders of intellectual parkour they are the free runners of the classroom oh man all right i'm gonna leave i'll leave you with a modern prayer mate that um it goes something like this uh, dear god so far today i've done all right i haven't gossiped i haven't lost my temper i haven't been greedy moody or selfish and i'm really pleased with myself but in a few moments god i'm going to have to get out of bed and from then on i'm going to need a lot more help thank you amen so i think and that's how we go isn't it it's life is tough life is we're all free running through it and i think it's that um understanding about the light and we are the light basically i think is the big thought there so matey i'm going to kind of ask you one more question then i'm going to round it up uh, of with course. a big thank you and it's a question that we ask to every single podcast contributor and that is what makes you happy Wow. That is um, that. I mean, you could go on all day. And, and the thing is, for me, there are so many things, you know, on the one level, if we, if uh, if I wasn't trying to be intellectual or clever, I'd say the uh, the simplicity of uh, an illicit pizza and a sneaky beer <laughs> and a sausage sandwich. mate, <laughs> and, and obviously a sausage sandwich <laughs> served by Billy. Um, but <laughs> if I'm going to be genuinely and, and a little bit deeper for me, um, the days I'm at my least happy is when I genuinely feel I've been of no use and I haven't left a mark uh, on people or, or done something of value. And by the way, that comes from and, and I hope you indulge me in this as we finish. That comes from um, when my grandfather died um, and I was very close to my grandfather because for a while when my parents split we lived with my grandparents so he was almost like a surrogate father for a lot of my childhood when he would died like for a lot of us you experienced that thing and, and it was the first I think proper bereavement in my close family it was hugely I remember standing and I must have been 12 13 standing at his graveside and and just having a moment to myself and this old guy came up next to me put his arm around me and it turns out he'd been a former business colleague of my grandfather's and he said you know I want you to be proud of your grandfather, young man, because he had more integrity than any human being I've ever met. And it's really funny because at that age, you don't process stuff in great detail. But I think somewhere in my mind, I remember thinking to myself, if somebody could say that about me when my time comes, then I've done OK. And I, if I'm honest with you, Andy, what makes me happy is feeling that I've lived that legacy in some small way on any hour, any minute, any day that's made a difference to somebody else. Gulp. Richard Gerver, inspiring, enlightening, entertaining, never disappointing. Big thoughts from a big thinker. Thanks for being on our podcast, mate. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Andy. 
And that, dear listener, is that. I hope you found it as interesting and as useful and as stimulating as I did. Congratulations, by the way, on making such a great choice of listening material. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I wish you well. You've been listening to the Art of Brilliance podcast. Listen to and subscribe to all our podcasts at www.artofbrilliance.co.uk slash podcasts.